many people take the time to dig through a century of property records, but if they did, an ugly history might be buried there. The North Shore NAACP collaborated with Harbor Light Homes, which is a Beverly-based affordable housing nonprofit, on what's called the Dirty Deeds Project. They scoured property records for racial covenants, which are now unenforceable provisions in property records which barred people of color and sometimes poor European immigrants from owning or renting land. Across 10 North Shore communities, their project unearthed about 560 racially restrictive covenants, part of a patchwork of discriminatory laws that still inform Massachusetts housing policy and racial wealth inequity to this day. I'm Jennifer Smith, and this is The Codcast, Commonwealth Beacon's podcast about policy and civic life here in Massachusetts. Today, I'm joined by Kanan Mackenzie DeFranza, president of the North Shore branch of the NAACP, and John Michael Fauna, the advocacy and education manager for Harbor Light Homes. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. So let's start out with the broadest possible look at this. John, what is a racial covenant? That's a really great place to start. Uh, A racial covenant, I have to say, is just like any other covenant that could go into a deed and that could be measuring the property line or what's allowed to take place there. Uh, And a racial covenant just has a covenant based on race. So a covenant could say something like, this property cannot have uh, tanneries on it for whatever reason. Then another covenant could say, persons of color cannot purchase this property. So it's a covenant really in line with kind of other covenants that you would normally expect to see, but clearly with a very different intention and purpose. So this project started as a partnership between both the Housing Advocacy Group and, of course, the NAACP. How did that actually start? Why focus on racial covenants on the North Shore, aside from that's where you guys are geographically based? I can speak to that. And I think much of it has to do with In our work as a North Shore NAACP, we were finding that so many of the complaints and concerns we had were really around education, which also were tied to demographic shifts, changes in housing patterns, changes in neighborhoods that were the source of tension, particularly as we had a more polarized national conversation. And so as we talked about the intersection of education, community segregation, and really being unfamiliar with one another, and even knowing the origins of some of these tensions, we really wanted to look at what do we know as a community about how our communities were even created, and to also challenge the notion that this was accidental or just people wanting to live with people like themselves all the time, and to actually think about the intentionality around policies that helped to create a disparate experience that then continues to create situations where we have to unpack how they're still affecting us. And we were hoping that people would better see the alignment between community segregation and how these tensions continue to foster over time And they often, unfortunately, show up with our young people and in our schools, um, primarily as a lot of sources of complaints and concerns. 
So many people end up finding covenants on their property, of course, when they're trying to do something with their property. Maybe they're trying to uh, build a treehouse, for instance, and they need to find out where the actual line is. Maybe they want to add an additional dwelling unit. So people usually end up finding out if there's some kind of restriction on their use of property when they actually want to change it. So what do you do and how do you find these covenants aside from relying on people just happening to stumble across them and instead of finding out that you can't put your drive where you wanted, getting a pretty nasty shock of a a rough racial history? How how do you actually end up finding hundreds of these things? That's an excellent question. And I want to peel apart two, two different sides of that. If you were just an individual trying to go back to your own records, and let's say you're even deliberately looking for something like this, uh, one of the challenges is that property lines aren't really as static as we might think they are. I think the changes happen over many decades, so we don't see it all the time. But your modern property lines could have been three or four properties, you know, 100 years ago when some of this stuff was getting written down. Uh, So one of the challenges is that when you read through your existing deed, it might point you to one document that leads to one property line, but it might not actually include this other side of your property. So it creates this kind of branching tree of a chain of title is what that's called. Uh, so it is there is a level of difficulty in, in researching that. Uh, this is all available publicly at your registry of deeds. And we work with the Southern Essex Registry of Deeds in this particular instance. Uh, but uh, even for, for them on their side, they're holding you know millions of pages of documents uh, so this research is a little difficult in that instance. So you might have to go kind of down a few pages and then realize something else is referencing. You go back up and discover this other branch. It can get a little difficult. Now, the other part I wanted to separate from this is the way we were able to do what we did. This started with uh, the University of Minnesota Libraries developed a program uh, called Mapping Prejudice. Uh, And they have an an actual program that can kind of read through these documents that are digitized. And it looks for keywords that we would consider, you know, likely to appear in a racial covenant. And then we had volunteers verify by hand that they were indeed racial covenants. And so that's how we actually got to the 567 documents that we were able to find. And I also want to even put an asterisk on that number and say not all documents are digitized even to this day. So there's likely more that we did not find. And then, you know, the program could have missed certain stuff that may have been worded differently or something like that. Kanan, I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit on kind of why this is interesting, because, of course, these are unenforceable now. There was a big boom in racialized covenants, especially around the 1920s, uh, because they kind of got around a bar at the time on having specifically racialized housing zones. So the Supreme Court ended up recognizing that these were allowed to exist for about 20, 25 years or so. But even when something is then declared unenforceable, it's not like the Register of Deeds just goes in and independently pulls every single one of these out of the documents. So what's the thinking about how learning about these uh, covenants, which are not technically legally enforceable, can help inform how we think about restrictive housing policy now? Well, as someone who is also a researcher in my other parts of my life, um, I'm an associate professor here um, and teach research methodology and teach in education courses. Knowledge is not only power, but it could be a uniter. And demystifying how we have come about as communities helps us to know how we might move forward as communities. So the objective isn't necessarily about unearthing shameful information for the sake of creating tensions. It's to say, 
we have a common starting point by which we understand how we have evolved as a community. And real estate in particular is perhaps one of the sources of wealth in our communities. Therefore, considering how being able to manufacture ways to keep people away from ways to gain wealth, equity, property, and ownership helps us to better understand how some groups became more privileged in their access than others. And so sometimes when we talk about things like privilege and use these kind of buzzwords, it immediately creates a sense of defensiveness or worry or shame. But what we're saying is that there are passive ways in which we have somehow come across these kinds of opportunities of access and wealth and all of that, which we may not have been party to. But it doesn't mean that the impact is not real. And so you have to start with real evidence. You have to start from a point of not just being anecdotal. And in a polarized society, it is helpful to have firsthand resources directly from sources that we would consider to be neutral or simply collection-based to say this has happened. Now we know this has happened. That means things like redlining actually seem more possible, that they actually might have been happening, where banks therefore said, in these communities, we don't lend to these people. And so what happens when you have communities that are marginalized, where they do not get preference to the more desirable communities? They then end up in communities that might be underserved by utilities, by the ways that we enhance the environment in those communities. And so for our society in the United States, that translates to how neighborhoods look, how they're maintained, whether you have value in your home, whether you can pass on properties, and to this day, what your tax base looks like. And we all know that how we fund schools has many mechanisms, but one of the greatest ways that we do that is through our tax base. So then we can start asking questions about, hmm, I wonder what this means for transportation in this community, for housing, for education, because we're relying on a tax base that was artificially made lower because we had policies in place that allowed us to discriminate against certain groups of people. And even who we defined as someone we could discriminate against evolved over time, which is another interesting part of our American history, where initially you might have had people of color also be defined as people who were Jewish, Italian, Armenian. And then over time, what we see is if you identify as a perfect person of African descent, you continue to stay on that trajectory in that covenant. So it also tells us a little bit more about for whom was this a longer period of time of exclusion? So that when we try to do anything restorative, we can be thoughtful in where was the most impact in terms of communities. So really this is about highlighting real evidence so that we can make that case for where are we trying to have restorative policies and why, and to take it away from simply subjective perspectives or the idea that someone is creating something that historically didn't have a lot of impact, but that we can actually see and make the through line for today. Absolutely. I, I think one of the things we, we've heard a lot of before is that, you know, things like, um, let's say, very racially polarized neighborhoods occur because people are making private choices and this is just what they prefer. But I want to 
to draw the point here that racial covenants and other policies like it, because this is one in a tapestry of policies, right? We have to remember that as well. We're only tackling one. But these policies took away the choice of private individuals to make a different opportunity. If someone did want to sell their home to a person of color, there were other interested parties institutionalizing ways to take that choice away from you. So the the idea that these are private choices, uh, these private choices are being limited by by interested parties for for various reasons, right? And so that's one of the reasons I, to 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 Kanan's point that we talk about what deliberate actions do we take now to undo those things because it takes deliberate action to undo deliberate action. And one of the through lines that we find today, and this one was very striking to me, is that of the 567 documents, over 95% of those documents, the properties are still today in single family housing zones, right? So we what we see is that the mechanism may have changed, but the, but the motivation the underlying motivation is still being served through other ways. And that's why I, I, I reference that tapestry of policies. Because yes, this thread was pulled, but not all the threads, right? And we still see that. Now there's a discussion today about ADUs and accessory doling units kind of tackling single family housing as a, as a one way. And we're only com we're coming to that conversation now in 2024, right? These uh, racial covenants were, were written up 100 years ago and we're, we're now talking about how to, you know, maybe attack those, those same properties. Is really what we're talking about, right? It's we could discuss the zoning and that discussion, but we're talking about the same properties ultimately. Yeah, and and I'm so glad you brought that up specifically uh, because it does get to the the kind of intersection as well between demographics. So it's not just race; it's also class, and so you end up with these sort of cycling issues and they often end up kind of coalescing into questions of what does it mean when you defend community character for instance so i wonder john actually if you could if you could elaborate a little bit more on how this is interacting with some of those different threads in that tapestry because canan also brought up redlining so when you're thinking about what makes a neighborhood a neighborhood and for whom uh what is this kind of help inform yeah well, one of the things i thought was interesting as we go through these records is how often the same names come up of the people on the institutional side, like who's actually selling the houses, who's actually writing these contracts. So I, we talk about a lot of this stuff theoretically, but I wanna bring it back maybe to think of your own community where you live. If you're gonna go sell a home in your community, there's probably a likely broker or a likely bank you're gonna be dealing with wherever you're from, right? There's real um, people and faces behind locality and these things that happen. And so these are individuals making individual choices, you know, right through till today. Right. I want to even draw the fact that, you know, the, the federal government got a bank on red lighting in October of last year. This isn't something that's like, you know, uh, happening you know many, many years ago. And so when we talk about that, that tapestry of policies and I call it, you know, I, I bring attention to single family housing. Uh, ultimately, I think what we saw is where you couldn't explicitly draw lines based on race, based on, you know, the various Supreme Court decisions, the actions of the civil rights movement made a big dent on that. And I'll even point to the fact that these racial covenants drop off in 1957, right, as that picks up. However, now you see a turn towards economic mechanisms as you draw more class-based uh, discrimination. And if, if you think about it in, in a kind of a demographic way, when you introduce a new population to any place, they might start off in apartments and then people are working for a few years and they're going to try to buy a house. So if you can cut them off at the apartment level, right, and not give them the chance to buy a house, you lock them into that economic condition. And that's kind of the, the what I think we've seen here in the notion. 
Kanan, I wonder if you could talk about how this is interacting with a broader conversation about how states and particularly kind of old New England revolutionary states have been engaging with some really ugly history. There's been uh, efforts, for instance, to think about the legacy of slavery in many of Boston's very old buildings, of course, thinking about trade routes that really were cover for other kinds of trade routes. Uh, so, So how are you thinking about I suppose the conflict between is the best way to deal with it to shelve it. So there are plenty of people who find these covenants who want it completely off of their records. They don't want someone to be able to look up their homes and see that they own a house that would have, for instance, a deed that wouldn't allow a black person to own it versus the idea of preserving it as part of the public record and really kind of engaging with it. So how are you thinking about that tension? That's a great question. And I think it is the undercurrent for some of the concerns about how we talk about it in school. And even sometimes what is the purpose of sharing the things we find out that are unattractive about our history? And also the concern about being trauma informed as we engage our community around these issues. For example, concerns about whether we are triggering people, whether Children are finding out things and feeling ashamed of their families or their backgrounds. One of the things that I like to do when I work with teachers is to help them to really think about it dually. Information is helpful, but not if it shuts down conversation and action. So there has to be a sense of, but what about it can bring us together now that we know this information? And so one of the reasons that we took the step of saying, here's what you can do about this being in your deed is to give those who care to take action, to say, I don't want to be connected to that, to say, this is historical language, which will not go forward in our deed. However, there isn't a desire for us to send them communications that say, do you know that you're in a property that harmed people and therefore you should be ashamed, you know, that is not at all the objective. The objective is to say, this is something interesting about where you live and the property you own. And historically it's valuable for us to know this, but if you feel like you're wanting to do something that might feel restorative to your family, here's a step you can take. That is a microcosmic act for what we are asking for collectively. If we can give people the tools and information to know how they might adjust something or how they might make a bigger social change because of what they know about ancestral behavior, we do it together. We're not doing it to call someone out and walk away. That's the distinction between calling out behavior and calling in behavior. So ideally, we are calling you in to understand something And hopefully you sit with us long enough to hear about what it means for today, not to you as an individual necessarily, and how knowing this helps us to build a stronger sense of community and connectedness and joint work in restoring these types of things. So when we talk about, let's say, the work of the NAACP or Harborlight, we're actually trying to create a sense of community with homeowners and renters, but also with people who feel like, I had no idea New England had this history. What do I do about it? Rather than saying, your ancestors committed these acts and so you're not a friend, you're not a neighbor, we're here to shame you. And so I have heard people say, to your point, I had no idea we had slavery in New England. Like, and say that today in 2024. Um, Say things like, I didn't know that we had families of enslaved people who were recaptured 
and lost their freedom even after we said we no longer imported enslaved people. We have on the North Shore shipbuilding that used to happen to transport slaves as part of our history. And one of the first places that was done, it was in Marblehead. Um, and so we don't share that to say this place is worse than another. We share that to say we are collectively responsible for knowing what these things are, but also we are collectively trying to heal from those things and to actually understand the work of organizations that are trying to redress it so that we are perhaps allies with them and, and less suspicious about why they're addressing certain policy conditions. So what does that restoration, what does that restorative justice look like? I think we can start on maybe kind of the practical housing front. Is there some kind of institutional action that you're looking for? And then sort of segue into the community side of it as well. What what does it mean if people uh, get their consciousness raised on an individual or collective level? So what would help with um, the institutional side? Is it removing these uh, covenants and their language? Is it uh, finding a specific way to indicate it? Is it uh, programs that are oriented at communities that have been exclusionary in this way? What's the what's the hope from the housing side, John? Absolutely. Uh, from the housing side, I could say this is obviously a very broad issue and something that's in many conversation spaces as we talk about it today. But what it ultimately comes down to is enabling people to have options about where they can live. That's the fundamental piece of it. And I'm happy to say that that, that benefits everybody, right? That's not even a specific target for any one community. That would I, I truly believe that's healthy for our entire community. Because when you enable those options, people can pick what's best for their lives. Some people do want to rent and, and maybe, you know, that's better for you where you are in your life. And other people do want to live in a single family home and, and want to raise their, their kids, uh, you know, in their home. Uh, but we need everything in between as well, because each one of those options are different spaces and rungs on the economic ladder. And the less options you have, the bigger those gaps are and people get stuck where they are. And then that stagnation I kind of describe it, frankly, as like still water. It can't be drunk, really. You can't drink still water, right? We, we need this kind of mobility in our society. I think it's truly healthy for us to have those options. And that, that's a really fundamental way to describe it. But also talking about it on the personal level, I, I want to uh, bring forward the example of Register O'Brien, who's the uh, Register of the uh, Southern Essex County Register of Deeds. As I was going through these documents, I again mentioned that I saw a lot of the same names coming up. And as I thought about those names, those are people who... Uh, I'm sure had some, you know, maybe racial pride or, or, you know, slash shame motivations going on there about why they were doing what they're doing. But ultimately, I do see a pattern of really a deep economic motivation to divide your community for the purposes of profit, right? And th so this was these are individuals who chose to use their institutional power to divide their community to personally profit off of that division. And then I look at someone like Register O'Brien, who has institutional power as well, and looked at what he saw before him, and he made a very different decision. He made a decision to institute a registrar's note, which is something no other registrar uh, that I've found has done before. So this is a new step, uh, I'd say taking leadership, you know, going out in front. And he documented within all of these existing chains of titles, acknowledging the language that existed and informing about the harm that those practices did cause. But his note is also forward-looking and acknowledges the progress that we have made. And I think leaves a message of, of, of when you read that note, I hope people walk away interested in that forward progress um, so that when someone else 
in, in an institutional role or even not in an institutional role is confronted with the opportunity to make a decision that they follow Register O'Brien's example rather than the example of these other individuals in, the, in these uh, documents. Kanan, I think I'm going to leave you with the last word on this one, which is what do you hope to see going forward across Massachusetts? Your focus is obviously incorrectly on the North Shore, but it's not alone in having these kind of covenants everywhere. Do you hope to see partnerships with other uh, NAACP chapters, other affordable housing organizations from an educational perspective, but then also it does seem to be part of the question of the way that we kind of approach equity from a regional place as well. So, so what are you hoping to see going forward? Well, I have to say I'm really grateful for this partnership. We are a 100% volunteer organization. So being able to rely on the resources of partners who care about making information known and available and transparent is really critical. So we're hoping that, as John said, not only in this area, but if there's a tapestry of policies that have been discriminatory and continue to have an impact, that we are sharing, that we are here to partner other branches, nonprofits, and other organizations who are willing to help us be in a space where we can provide this as a service to the community with the intention as we were sharing to have more of those responses, like our registrar who said, you know what, let me take it upon myself to take that step. And I think that courage also comes from knowing that you have the support um, from the community and from interested individuals. And likewise, maybe you take the step for them um, in acknowledging these harms. So I would close by saying that we really want to empower people to know that it is okay to partner and get guidance on how we can help each other collectively and to do it in a way that is really about enhancing a sense of community through these actions. Second, I would say that we want to be able to build tolerance for understanding how we got here. I think the level of empathy shifts when we understand the true definition of various things we take for granted today. When we say things like redlining, it might sound like it was just a one-off banking kinds of practices, but we have a better and deeper understanding for how we got here. So the tolerance for the time it might take to shift things might grow because we'll realize how deeply entrenched some of these things are. We also will have, I hope, tolerance and understanding for the tensions we have in our communities and maybe being more open to understanding why people may resist even believing these changes can happen. And finally, I'm hoping we're going to see more collective action around restorative practices with one another, whether that is something as specific as looking at your friend group. Who do you actually take the time to interact with in your community? You might feel comfortable supporting these ideas in the abstract, but less comfortable actually rubbing shoulders with people unlike yourself. So can this, in fact, encourage us to know that collective action means working together on positive steps and not feeling like we're relegated to just talking about it in the abstract or reading about it? And so even in our branch, we talk about getting to know one another is part of the work. We have a very diverse branch. And many people live in communities where they would say the diversity is very low, but they care about these issues. So what can we do to help each other collectively change the narrative and change the direction? So I feel like this project 
was a way that Harbor Light and the North Shore and AACP did that, but also that this could be, um, you know, an example for how other organizations can work together and give the community some collective action steps they can take. Thanks again to Kanan Mackenzie DeFranza and John Michael Fana for joining me on the podcast this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Jennifer Smith. Our producer is John Gee. Leave a rating and review wherever you're hearing this now if you want to help other folks find us. And email podcast at commonwealthbeacon.org if you ever want to get in touch directly. We'll be back in your ears next week, but also keep an eye out for a partner podcast between the podcast and Mass Inc. Polling Group's The Horse Race, which is coming around Valentine's Day. We'll see you in person. <laughs>